0: Welcome to PI's Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Good morning. It's Thursday. I have a great guest for you. I'm so excited about this guest. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of a company called Hunchly. Well, we have the founder of that company right here on our show, Justin, and it's Sight's Justin?
2: It, it is, science, yes. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Uh, so this is going to be fun. And as I just told you offline, I don't understand any of this, but I'm hoping that you'll be able to explain it so our listeners can to, can get it. And me too, as a you matter bet. of fact. Um, before we get started, I just want to uh, touch base on uh, some conferences that are coming up. There's the um, NCISS National Council of Investigating Security Services conference at the West. Um, I'm sorry, at the Capitol Skyline Hotel in Washington D.C. Coming up real soon, April 29th to, to uh, May 1st. That's our at the annual Hit the Hill, where people can go talk to their their congressmen and their senators, along with their fellow investigators and security professionals. The second one is the California Association conference in Las Vegas at the Westgate Hotel, May 30th to June 1st. That's going to be a huge conference. Log on to uh, cali.org, and you'll get all the details on that one. The NCISS one, you can log on to nciss.org and get the information. Then finally, coming up in July, is the NALI Conference, National Association of Legal Investigators at the Doubletree Hotel in Philadelphia, July 18th to 19th. National Association Legal Investors. Okay, there you go. That's my commercial for for uh, associations. And Justin, um, let's just talk a little bit about your your background. I was just looking at your your bio here, and it's it's amazing. So you've um, you learned to get into this business by hacking. Is that am I understanding that right?
2: That's uh, pretty accurate. Yeah, I spent a number of years in. Cybersecurity, and part of the work that we did was naturally assessing what a company looks like from the outside. So, our ultimate goal was, you know, for us as attackers to try to break into that company, try to teach them how we did that so that they could prevent it from happening when the real bad guys came calling. Mm-hmm. As part of this work, naturally open source intelligence was a big part of what we did. We had to understand the company. We had to understand the infrastructure that the company operated. And in some cases, we were tasked with, you know, doing social engineering. So we would be calling support desks or calling employees trying to get passwords or other PII. And, um, you know, naturally, that kind of got me really interested in, more of the open source intelligence investigation space because I found that digging up information on companies and individuals was just as fun as the hacking part. So that's kind of where, uh, where I cut my teeth for sure.
1: Yeah, very interesting. So, so you're the co-founder of Dark River Systems. Tell me a little bit about that. What is that?
2: Yeah, so Dark River Systems is a company founded uh, by myself and my wife. Um, we kind of have three prongs to our business. The first is doing uh, investigations and consulting. So our company kind of has three different areas to our business. The first is doing investigations and consulting work. So we actually work with other investigators, law firms, and other folks to assist on investigations. We also have training that we offer that is kind of advanced open source intelligence training. It's designed to teach people how to write code to actually do information gathering as opposed to doing it manually. And then a big part of our business is developing and supporting Hunchly, um, which is used by law enforcement agencies, uh, private detectives, journalists, all kinds of people all over the world.
1: Oh, great. And so you're actually in Canada, Saskatchewan? That's correct, yep. Okay, and and so your your commu- your uh, company is based there. So, um, if people were interested in contacting you, how would they do that?
2: Yeah, the easiest way is just to shoot me an email, Justin at hunch.ly.
1: Okay, that's easy. All right, uh, Justin at hunch.ly. As in Hunchly, it. right? <laughs> so. <laughs> I know you've been featured in Motherboard, Forbes. Uh, you've you've done all kinds of podcasts, media events. Um, what kinds of things do you talk about when you're when you're on those kind of forums?
2: It really depends. Um, you know, I've I've kind of talked about anything from, uh, you know, in Forbes it was kind of discussing how I would used you know some some kind of off the shelf tools and a little okay. bit of creativity to automatically find weapons in social media posts. And so a journalist, you know, I've done anything from talking about how to automatically identify weapons in social media posts, which is where some of the Forbes reporting came from. Um, You know, I often get asked to talk about, you know, the dark web, um, how to investigate in the dark web, you know, is it as scary as people think? Um, It really varies. I'm kind of fortunate that I do sit in this intersection between You know, journalists and and PIs and law enforcement and lawyers, and I get to kind of see this interesting cross section of how investigations are carried out, um, where things are kind of heading in a legal sense, um, you know, technology issues, because I am primarily a technical person. Um, So, yeah, it it really varies. I'm really fortunate that I get to talk on a whole bunch of different topics.
1: That's, <clears throat> that's really fascinating. You really get the benefit of, of all venues, don't you?
2: Yeah, I really do. It's, uh, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty rare that you get to kind of sit, and sometimes these are kind of opposing forces as well. So it's interesting to be able to sit and, and be able to see kind of different sides of, of how, you know, a journalist might approach a problem versus how a police officer would approach a problem, for example.
1: Right. And what are the differences, do you think?
2: I don't think there are any, to be perfectly honest. You know, mm-hmm. I think that for the most part, when you have kind of groups that appear externally to be on opposite sides or, you know, they, they might publicly uh, spar or whatever the case may be, I think the interesting thing is that when you kind of boil it down, at the end of the day, everybody is just trying to find the truth. So, you know, if it's, a, if it's assuming that they have, you know, they're ethical, um, you know, if you really sit back and examine it, it's, you know, police officers are, are trying to find the truth for a case. Journalists are trying to find um, the truth for the public. Um, private investigators are trying to find the truth for their clients. So I think that even though a lot of these, you know, individuals and organizations may seem at odds at the very fundamental level, everybody's just trying to find the truth. They're trying to find the facts to support either you know, making a policy decision or to help close a criminal case or to um, help assist the defendant.
1: You know, I see that you're a member of the International Criminal Court's Technical Advisory Board. What, what is that? What does that consist of? What do they do?
2: Yeah, so, so the ICC is pretty well known for prosecuting war crimes and, and other mandates that people generally know them for. I think the interesting thing, what we've seen in the past couple of years is that the ICC naturally uh, is having to adapt a little because the, the evidence is becoming more increasingly digital. There are people who um, are gathering you know, intelligence about crimes from YouTube, from social media sites and other places. And so as part of the, the group that I belong to, um, it's a bunch of human rights people largely driven by the folks at Berkeley. Um, and we're all basically there to help support the ICC and help to kind of design you know how do we how do we continue to move forward in this digital age how do we deal with online evidence those types of things so I would say I'm probably um, the least smart person out of the entire group there are some incredibly brilliant people that are working on these issues there are lawyers and human rights researchers and uh, again, I'm, I'm more of a technical person that provides some assistance, um, but that's really the, the ultimate goal is to kind of continue to, to manage how digital evidence is acquired is a big thing for us.
1: And how did you get involved in that, Justin? Uh,
2: I was just basically approached um, by some folks that I had kind of met uh, over the past few years in the open source intelligence space. Um, some human rights people, and it's a pretty small community. So they'd kind of approached me and said, hey, you know, you're you're doing a lot of work in this field and you are more on the technical side. Would you be willing to help kind of, uh, you know, pinch in and, and help us understand some of this stuff or help us to kind of, uh, you know, to help move things forward from, you know, your perspective, how, you know, I approach things is different than, than maybe somebody who, uh, was who brought up as a prosecutor, or maybe if you were just a pure human rights researcher. So um, yeah, I was honored to, to be able to join these people again. I'm, I'm very much, uh, I'm humbled by just the amazing group that they have in place.
1: That's amazing. That's uh, incredible. And then you're also with the Center for Advanced Defense Studies in, D- in Washington, DC. What is that about?
2: Yeah, so C4ADS is a is an organization that is looking to kind of, you know, take this unique way of of trying to figure out how we can use open data, to um, you know, kind of look at how how you know countries and organizations how we can kind of do a better job of of promoting peace. So uh, yeah, I mean, basically what what they're trying to do is is look for ways of of using open data to kind of come up with um, raising issues, whether it's arms trafficking. More recently, uh, a report was put out about how Russia was using uh, GPS spoofing to hide the location of vessels. Um, so it's a really unique organization that has, um, you know, the ability to, to just, they have this uncanny ability to look at data in this really unique way to shine a lens on things in in ways that people just aren 't doing um, so again it's it 's this amazing organization, and my role is really just to help assist the teams in their various projects that they 're working on, either from just a guidance perspective, how to tackle a particular problem or to actually pitch in from a technical perspective to actually lend a hand to, to help you know, build proof of concepts or whatever is required. So again, it was one of those situations where I was a big fan of C4ADS um, and they had kind of reached out to me and, and said, hey, we're a fan of your work. And I'm like, oh, I'm a fan of your work. We have a mutual admiration <laughs> society. This is great. And so I was totally honored um, to, to be a fellow for them. They are truly an amazing organization and doing some really important work.
1: This is it's such exciting stuff. I mean, I, I can imagine every day you learn something new.
2: Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly it. And I think that's you know the the real lesson I've learned is that it, it is every day there's something new that I didn't know yesterday. And I think that that fits so that very well takes for me
1: up to um, you are the creator of Hunchley. Tell us about Hunchley.
2: Yeah, so Hunchly is a very simple tool that bolts onto Google Chrome or Chromium, and it basically follows an investigator around as they're doing their online work, and it automatically documents and preserves evidence for that investigator. So if you've ever done a social media investigation or something where you're digging around online and you find something that is interesting, you know, the traditional method is, you know, write down the time of when you found it, maybe take a screenshot, note the URL of where you found that information. Uh, you know, save that screenshot in a folder with about a thousand other screenshots. And then eventually when you go to write a report, you're going to go digging through that folder trying to find that stuff. Mm -hmm. So Hunchley's job is to kind of remove all of that burden from the investigator, because as you know, when you get into that investigative flow and you're really digging into a case and you're in that, you know, that perfect kind of mindset to keep digging and pulling on threads, it's really tough when you have to break out of that to to take screenshots or do documentation work. So our whole goal is to remove the burden from the investigator, preserve everything that they see automatically so that they don't have to worry about that, and they can focus on just doing the investigative work.
1: Well, and the nice thing, uh, Justin, about it is, you know, um, I don't know what how the laws are in in Canada, but for sure in, in the United States, we have to prove where the information came from. And so you have to have all that source data uh, just in case you're challenged. So essentially provides that.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that that's exactly the the big challenge, right? Is that certainly in the United States the laws have changed around digital evidence. And in Canada, we've had some precedent set in the last couple of years, particularly with a case called uh, Crown versus Hamden. This was a terrorism case that's, that it's kind of... Nexus was uh, an analyst who discovered this person online promoting uh, materials for ISIS. Um, the, the trouble was is that how the organization, the law enforcement organization, documented some of his online materials um, was really challenged in court. So there were a lot of holes kind of poked in it. And it wasn't that they, had, they didn't find the information they said they found... It was about the small things, like the timestamps and the URLs and um, non-kind of consistent evidence format that they were submitting. So the, we're really that's a, a big thing we're trying to solve is so that when an investigator, either on the defense side or on the prosecuting side or wherever, when they're doing this work, that our tool is producing evidence in a way that can stand up to scrutiny by a third party, because, as you know, uh, anytime you write a report or do anything for a client, you have to always assume that you're going to have to sit in a witness box and testify to what you saw and what you found. Exactly so our right. job is to make it tougher for the opposing side to challenge the evidence you've provided that you collected online.
1: So have you had has Hunchley been challenged in court, Justin? Did you know? It? So we're not.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're not aware of any direct challenges where, you know, counsel or otherwise has said, hey, you know, how is this tool doing this work or questioning anything on, you know, how we produce our evidence? Um, it's going to come. I mean, we know that. We, we know that that is just part of how the courts work. You know, as, as new technology, new ideas and things are being introduced,
1: mm-hmm. it is,
2: it's imperative that the courts on both sides are challenging how that evidence is produced, um, and that's how you keep things balanced and fair. Um, but we haven't we haven't necessarily heard that, although we know Hunchley materials have been used in court cases, um, plea deals, and other things in you know numerous countries, Europe, Canada, uh, the U.S., um, and other places where we know that those materials have been submitted to courts. Uh, we have not heard anything back on our side as to you know any potential issues um, that we've produced.
1: And and do you testify as an expert? So I
2: have done very little testimony as a, kind of a, an expert in social media or evidence collection. I don't really, I don't even like the term expert, <laughs> to be honest. It's um, coming, just so I, you know it's I,
1: coming.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, and that's always, you know, and I've certainly been asked that before, like, well, would you be prepared to testify to talk about how Hunchley does things? I'm like, well, absolutely, because if I... If I said no, then that means that all our thousands of customers should really question whether they should own our product or not. Right. Um, so, you know, it's it's one of those things where absolutely I'd be more than prepared to to testify, you know, how our tool works, how, you know, how it produces evidence. And we even publish an evidence guide on our knowledge base. And in that guide, we discuss how you can challenge the evidence we produce. So we're very transparent. We tell people Here are the ways that you can actually challenge the evidence that we produce, because uh, we want people to be prepared for those things before they're sitting in the witness box. Right. We don't want them trying to formulate this stuff, you know, on the fly. Uh, It's you know, I come from the hacking world, which means that there is no such thing as bulletproof. There really isn't. So we, we try to make sure we're, we're up front with our customers. Here are the things that we do great. Here are some areas where you can see potential challenges. And they really appreciate that. You know, they're like, at least you're being completely open and honest and letting us know that there could be potential challenges so that we can plan our testimony around that.
1: Fascinating. And so, Justin, do you do, you do trainings for uh, investigator groups?
2: So, I don't do uh, kind of traditional investigative training so much, Um, but I do, like, groups invite me to to do all kinds of talks. So, I I typically, you know, for me, I generally just kind of will schedule a one-hour webinar if there's a group that's like, hey, we'd love for you to come and, you know, teach us about, you know, doing investigations on the dark web, or can you talk to us about... You know all kinds of different you know topics. I do those lots, so um, but I don't do kind of full day training and I don't do kind of uh, you know the traditional in classroom stuff uh, that's just not really uh not not kind of part of what we uh, what we do. We let some of the other kind of training experts uh, do that work
1: okay well. Fascinating. Well, maybe you'll change your mind one one of these
0: days.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if there's an organization listening that ever wants, you know, a uh, a one-hour session, uh, you're more than welcome to reach out to me.
1: Well, you certainly might hear from them, for sure. So, today's, uh, we're going to talk today about uh, an article you wrote about... um, Really, undercover investigations and being online and having your URL tracked and all those kind of things. So, I'm going to let you take it from there because, as I said before, I don't know what this is about. This is not. This is out of my wheelhouse, and it's in yours. So, sure. I'm going to let you take it from there.
2: Yeah. So, so I wrote an article a while ago about how um, when we're communicating with each other using common messaging applications, so WhatsApp you know, iMessage on your iPhone, um, wire signal, these types of tools uh, naturally are extremely useful and they have all these other amazing security features like encryption and all this other jazz. But what we found was the fact that when we actually are discussing something between two parties, that information could actually leak out from those conversations. And in particular, it's when we are discussing Particular URLs or websites. So, for example, uh, Francie, me and you are chatting on our iPhones back and forth, and I send you a link to, you know, Google.com. And in your in your phone application, you'll generally notice when that text comes in that there's a, a preview, a little kind of snapshot of the web page you're about to go and visit. Right? You can kind of see a little snapshot.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
2: the the interesting the interesting thing to me was when I see that little kind of preview, that little snapshot, how is my phone doing that? How is it generating that preview? Now, naturally, what it means is that in some cases, your phone is actually reaching out to google.com and kind of grabbing some of that content so that it can see what the preview is going to look like before it displays it in your phone. So that became interesting to me because Years ago, um, while I was doing a penetration test, this kind of clicked back into my mind as I was thinking about it in investigative terms today. What had happened was I was trying to hack into an organization. Of course, they hired me to do this. Um, And as I was watching one of the places where I'd kind of, for lack of a better term, I'd kind of placed a virus in a certain spot and I was waiting for this virus to call back home to me so that I could kind of break into their systems. Now, where this virus was sitting, it was on a server that I controlled. All of a sudden, I noticed that there were these little hits to my server, but they weren't from the target organization that I was trying to hack into. The yeah. hits were actually coming from, um, they were coming from Skype. So I, at first, I was like, why on earth, like nobody knows where this server is. So why on earth am I seeing little hits? from Skype of all things and then it dawned on me that the team that was defending against my hacks was actually talking about the server that I was running where I had hosted <laughs> the virus That's and so weird. because they were talking to each other over Skype when Skype was building URL previews when they were kind of you know giving those little previews of the website what it was doing was actually Skype had to reach out to my server and then to in order to make that preview So then, of course, at that point, I knew that they were on to me. So moving forward a few years, I realized that this is actually the same issue, except when we look at it from the lens of investigation. This can mean that if you're talking to a colleague or you're talking to a source um, and you're using these applications, there is the potential that you could actually tip off the target of your investigation just by discussing any websites that they might own that they might host or that they might control. And so this is kind of where the, the article came from, was, was me going, okay, I remember seeing this with Skype. I kind of saw it on my phone, which re-clicked my memory in more modern times, because I'm getting old. And then I kind of went, you know what, I wonder if I do a bit of an inventory of all the applications that I generally use or have used, I wonder which one of them leaks this information and in what way. So is it actually, in some cases, my, if I was sending a message to you, when that URL preview is created, it's actually the IP address of my home office that is showing up uh, on, you know, on the internet that's pinging off of that website to generate that preview. So that's obviously a bad thing. Um, we don't want that. When we're doing an investigation and we're discussing something with someone, we certainly do not want anyone else to know that that's happening. And on top of it, we certainly don't want our own IP addresses showing up somewhere that we wouldn't want to have happen. So um, it was interesting as I kind of went through a bit of an inventory of all these applications just to see which ones behaved in that way. Um, Sometimes applications like Skype, they would actually uh, use their own servers. So you'd kind of post the message and then that would go out to their server and then their server would actually reach out to yours to do that preview. Other times it was actually your own device, so your desktop computer or your cell phone that itself was reaching out directly to those to those websites to generate previews. And so it was really kind of a way to, to make it known to investigators, you know, be aware that some applications you're going to want to turn that setting off, and in some cases you might actually be exposing yourself or your colleagues or a source um, if you're talking about websites using one of these messaging applications.
1: That is fascinating. So, you know, there's people often talk about when they go to uh, a a specific website, all of a sudden they start getting ads in their email for that same product or whatever it is. And so, the fact that you're telling me that just from a conversation, it that can happen. That's uh, that's a kind of a scary thought,
2: actually. Yeah, and I mean, the the advertising thing is a slightly different issue in how they're able to kind of target you with with ads, you know, that seem to follow you, right? Like, when you go and, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I just, like, suffered some volleyball injuries, so I'm, like, searching for ankle braces on Amazon, and then all of a sudden, ankle braces are showing up on my Facebook page, Right. Um, right. so in that way they're, they're using cookies to be able to kind of track you as you move no. from website okay. to website. Um, and then they call it retargeting. So, um, they're, they're trying to kind of, if you've seen product, you know, if you've seen product a over on this website and then you move over to a different website, they can actually retarget you with advertising. Um, so I find it to be a pretty dirty trick of, <laughs> of how advertisers do it, but, um, yeah, I don't know, I guess it's always interesting to me that lots of people are up in arms about privacy as it relates to investigations or how law enforcement does these things. Uh, but they're happy to go on Amazon and buy exactly. stuff and be retargeted through advertising yes. and tracked everywhere they go. It's, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing.
1: There is no privacy. I mean, we have to, we have to just no. realize that there is no privacy. Uh, we need to take a quick break, Justin. We'll be right back. Thank you so sure. much.
2: PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com
0: Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to FRANCIE at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
1: My guest today is Justin Seif. He's the co founder of Dark River Systems. He's our Canadian connection, by the way. And he's the creator of Hunchly, And many of you know about Hunchley. You like that, Justin, the Canadian connection?
2: I do. <laughs> so, I'll take it.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we were just talking about how this, uh, how our information is pretty, pretty much everywhere. And so I'll let you take it from there.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the big thing is, you know, for me, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't work on the privacy side of the house, which might sound a bit strange because often, you know, privacy is deeply connected to open source intelligence. So for me, I guess it's, it's interesting because if you take a look at um, someone like Michael Basil, who's very private, uh, very difficult to, I, I think it's an open challenge to see if you can actually figure out who he is. Um, you know, I think that it's a different skill set that uses a lot of the same tools, uses a lot of the same training and techniques. Um, but for me, I'm I'm kind of like, you know, I'm easy to find. Um, and I think that our, our privacy, unless you work at it day in and day out, there is so much data being collected about us everywhere we yeah. go. The the real yeah. concern for me is, is more about when we're doing that investigative work, how do we at least limit our exposure, right? And I think that, that it has to be a reasonable level of, of kind of privacy and security. But the other part of that is there's always a balance, right? Like I think that if you're going out and doing a social media investigation for an insurance client, you don't have to treat your security like the NSA is coming for you. Right, It's it's way too cumbersome. It's way too aggressive. There's really no need for it. Um, But certainly, if you're a cybersecurity researcher that's digging around, um, looking at malware that Russia or China has developed, you do have to take some additional precautions. So um, even though I feel like our privacy really doesn't... We don't exist in a private world anymore. I also feel like we have to apply a reasonable amount um, to protect ourselves when we're doing investigative work, but not to overshoot that.
1: That's a very good point. So so how does what you have talked about prior in the show, how does this apply, how do we apply this to online investigations that we're doing? Well, I think if we kind of
2: you know walk backwards through some of the things I've discussed, the, the first is, You know, if you're doing online investigations of any kind, you should kind of carry the mindset that the minute that I do a Google search on behalf of a client or on behalf of my law enforcement agency or anything like that, the way I treat those things is that as soon as I've run that search, I have to be prepared to talk about it in court. I have to be prepared to stand in front of a judge and explain what I did. So the first thing is like just remembering that You know, everything you do, every step you take is important. And this is not a big sales pitch for Hunchley, but it is really more about telling investigators, like, document, 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 document. You know, develop some muscle memory with a tool, whether it's Hunchly or FireShot or something else. Document your findings and get in the habit of doing it because I have seen investigators get totally burned because they didn't treat that documentation as seriously as they should or they didn't think that they'd be asked to produce a piece of evidence that um, you know, or, or something they didn't even think was worthwhile, and had cases thrown out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the second thing is that when you're doing that work online, to take some to take some precautions. Um, you know, I mentioned like that earlier. He's got a, a number of resources for staying private. He's got books and, and other resources, but just thinking about like. Don't use your own Facebook account. one wrong click and you can actually befriend you know someone that you're actually actively investigating. Um, learn how to kind of uh, build up a bit of of a bit of technical expertise. It doesn't have to be a lot, but some very simple things can help to at least cover some of your tracks. Um, VPNs are something that people have talked about lots in the last few years and and I think, generally speaking, we could actually thank Netflix for uh, people um, acquiring VPNs at a, at a higher rate because it allows someone, uh, for example, in the United States, to watch the Canadian version of Netflix, that's how generally people have kind of learned how to use them, but they can, they can uh-huh. kind of, addition, they can also help protect you, hide your IP address and, and do some very basic kind of technical protections to, to assist you. So that's the big thing, you know, that I, that I try to, when I'm talking to investigators, like, document everything you do and protect yourself. You know, do, do as much as you need to protect yourself uh, depending on the work you're doing.
1: So, Justin, one thing you said was not to use your own Facebook account. Um, so we have a, a kind of a problem with, in California, for example, that on a criminal, on a criminal defense case, we have to disclose when we if we're contacting a witness or a victim in a case, we have to disclose who we are, so we cannot pretext or or um, use a Facebook account that doesn 't look like it 's us. How do you get around that
2: right, so again it's uh, and what you 're describing is obviously having to you know, put protections in place that reflect the activity you're doing. So if you are going to be reaching out to somebody and the loss is in your jurisdiction um, that you cannot pretext under these certain conditions, then it's being mindful of that. There are often other cases where using, you know, what they call sock puppet accounts, um, is completely acceptable that it, it's a passive intelligence gathering, which means you're not interacting with another human, you are simply uh, going and observing materials that are online. Um, we've also seen courts starting to change how they allow people to talk to targets or talk to witnesses in undercover scenarios as well, and this is also impacting mm-hmm. law enforcement. So we're going to see mm-hmm. this constantly evolve, um, but again, like it, it really if the activity you're doing under law requires you to use your own account, then that also means you can still look at the fact that, is this my, my PI kind of official account, or is this the account where I have my family members and I'm talking about puppies every day? Both still represent okay. who you are, one is going to disclose a lot more about you. So again, these are all things, and, and, and definitely, which I'm, I constantly tell people, like I'm not a lawyer, you should make sure you have a good one and run those <laughs> things by them because ultimately exactly. if something does kind of go upside down, they're the ones who have to defend you anyway. So talk to them about how this applies. But you can also see that if, the, if it's like, yeah, you have to identify yourself by name, well, that's no problem. You can have a secondary research account that identifies you by name, but has no real materials that you would, you know, it doesn't have pictures of of you on vacation, for example.
1: Okay, okay, okay.
2: But again, I'm right. not a lawyer, so well, make sure you uh, yeah, make sure I know, you talk and, to your and lawyer and about it, all that first. <sighs>
1: yeah, and it, and it it is a bit sticky here because we we do have to we have to disclose who we are and who we're representing and all that. All that stuff. Yeah. So, so okay. So, you have talked about, um, uh, for example, Slack and and Apple Messaging and things like that. Let's talk about those.
2: Yeah, sure. So, just in terms of like, um, from an
1: investigative standpoint, right? From an investigative standpoint.
2: Yeah. So, so I mean, again, like. If we're referencing back to my article, I think the big thing to to remember is, is you know, how are you communicating with, um, you know, how are you communicating with colleagues? Because often, you know, especially if you have a case that's like in a different state and you have someone else that's helping you uh, on the ground, how do you communicate with them securely? Um, how do you communicate with them in a way that's going to be, you know, if you do need to document it for court that you can that you can actually maintain documentation. So I think that, you know, from an investigative standpoint, there's the issue of using it as a communications tool to actually get investigations done. And then there's the flip side of it is um, understanding, like, even, for example, if, if the target you're after only uses a particular platform um, and, and you have no idea how to even, like, use that application, uh, I think this okay. is like one of those useful things where, um, you know, getting an idea, even looking at that list of applications that I, that I put in my article, um, is not a bad idea, number one, to kind of get yourself into those services and fire them up and use like a colleague in your office or a colleague, you know, across state lines and, and just test out what's it like communicating with each other. How do we You know, is there anything, you know, are we seeing anything weird? How does this work? How do I share a photo with you? Um, Because number one, uh, it's going to at least cue you up to think about the security and privacy concerns, but also nothing is worse than having to jump into an investigation and you actually have no idea how to communicate with your target and you have to learn that on the fly. Right. Um, So again, it's more relevant for people doing kind of undercover work, but I've certainly seen in the past where Um, You know, someone's talking to a, a target online, maybe on on like Facebook and the target goes, "Okay, let's move this conversation off of Facebook to over here. And the investigator goes, oh, crap. Like, I don't even have a cell phone I can do that on or <laughs> I don't even know, I don't know what WhatsApp is or, you know, what Snapchat, Facebookagram, I have no idea. So, they, you know, they, they can easily kind of get themselves in a bind. Um, so, again, I think it's, it's worthwhile to kind of explore these applications both from
1: oh, sure. uh, the work
2: perspective but also from the other side as well.
1: So, uh, Justin, what does Slack provide?
2: Yeah, so Slack is just like, think of it, you know, if you think about like the chat rooms of the late 90s and early 2000s, Slack is basically, you know, a chat room that uh, is on steroids, effectively. It's, it's really a platform that allows you to collaborate with a team. So we leverage Slack heavily um, uh, on our team for Hunchly. That's how we communicate uh, as a team. That's how we we uh we basically 99% of our communication is all done on slack um, but it's also a way for example there are public slack channels um, that are actively advertised where you might have targets that hang out there and it's just exactly like you would treat a chat room if you were on the dark web or like I said, like a chat room from the, the, early, uh, the early days of the dot-com. Um, you know, it's basically just a communication platform that allows both kind of communal gatherings but also one-to-one uh, private messaging.
1: And if you wanted to disable the previews on that, what would you do? How would you do that?
2: Yeah, so in the settings, uh, and we detail this in the article, you know, in the settings for Slack, you can actually just go into your preferences and there is a setting that says, you know, do not generate, uh, you can kind of uncheck the box that says, uh, create URL previews for messages. And that will disable that when you're, uh, when you're talking with your colleagues. But again, in, in in my case with my team, I leave that enabled because it is a convenience feature and we are not discussing investigation topics uh, on the Hunchley development team. That's not something that happens. Um, so I'm not discussing anything sensitive. When we're posting URLs, it's generally to, you know, uh, articles or we're posting things uh, to technical resources when we're researching a problem, for example. So, again, you can see even in my own life, I apply kind of the – uh, the same rule of thumb, like don't overdo the security and privacy stuff, and it, it, or else it'll just it'll be more of a pain than it's worth.
1: Okay, okay. Well, let, let's talk about Facebook, Justin, because I think probably that's what people are most interested in and probably mostly pursue. Uh, tell us about that. Tell us about uh, how to go about doing investigations on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, uh, Facebook is uh, Facebook's
2: an interesting beast. You know, it's evolved a lot over the last few years, particularly um, after the Cambridge Analytica stuff. We've seen Facebook really tighten up uh, how they allow people onto their platform and what they allow people to do on their platform. So one of the biggest challenges that, that investigators face when looking at Facebook is, number one, how do I even get an account set up that's not me? Um, It used to be that you could just sign up for a Facebook account with just an email address. And then eventually they said, well, no, we're going to require a secondary piece of information like a mobile phone number. That's generally not a big issue because we have applications like Sudo and TextNow and others where you can get kind of a, you can get a phone number for any jurisdiction. So if I wanted a phone number in California, um, I can just kind of pick and say, "Yep, give me this phone number, and I can actually make calls, receive calls, send text messages from that number. Now the issue is that Facebook then wised up to that and said, well, actually, we're not gonna allow you to set up accounts using um, these voice over IP providers anymore. We want an actual real phone. Um, So then people find workarounds for that too. And then they, they started doing things like, well, we want a picture of you now too. So the, the big issue for investigators is kind of like jumping through those initial hoops of setting up an account that is not directly tied to them, right? And in much the same way as we discussed previously, in an ideal world, you'd have your fancy Facebook account that allows you to talk to your family and friends, and you've got one that you use for investigations, even if it might identify you by name, it's not going to be tied back to a phone number or an email address or something that you use okay. daily, Um, So Facebook has made it tougher for investigators to do this now. And and there's no real kind of rule of thumb that that works, sadly. So you can kind of see the chatter online and in in kind of investigation forums where people are talking about, like, how do I do this? Facebook locked me out or or whatever. And there is no hard and fast rule. It's going to be trial and error. I mean, one of the great things is, you know, obviously in the United States, uh, you can easily buy a burner phone and you can just kind of use that as your phone to authenticate to these services, uh, which can help you work mm-hmm. around it. Um, but again, be mindful that, that you are, if you're going to go on Facebook under uh, you know, a pseudonym, uh, you are actually violating uh, Facebook's uh, terms of use, right? Um, because right, they right. expressly do not want a bunch of uh, people on their platform that are not real. Uh, even though I will point out that they're more than happy to let Russians manipulate elections and they're more than happy to <laughs> stuff advertising down your face and they're more than happy to sell your user data, but they certainly don't want investigators on there. So that's uh, there's my dig at Facebook because I just don't agree with 99% of their policies, how they <laughs> apply this stuff. Um, so hopefully, right. uh, yeah, hopefully that changes because there's also legitimate work being done by human rights researchers, activists, or dissidents in countries where they can't use their name you know and, and forcing them to jump through all these hoops actually puts their life at risk so anyway right. aside from the soapbox which I'll climb off of now um, <laughs> okay. the, the next big hurdle for, <laughs> for investigators is like well, what do I do once I'm on here right like what what are what do I do how do I how do I right. kind of figure out the best places to find information and often investigators don't realize that just what you see on someone's timeline is not the full picture. It's not everything that's there. So if, if you were to kind of watch over my shoulder um, and I, as I dug into someone on Facebook, generally speaking, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to log in. I'm going to take a look at their page and kind of have a scroll around, see if there's any identifying materials, you know, anything that might indicate where they are, um, you know, photographs, that kind of thing. But then the next thing I do is I head to inteltechniques.com and I use the Facebook tools to run um, queries that uh, Intel Techniques helps you kind of build these queries so that you can say, show me all of the times this person was tagged in a post. Show me all of the, the, the times that this person liked a video, for example. So what this does is it expands your view of your target. You're able to cast a much wider net and see a lot more materials for that particular target. Now, another big kind of challenge as, as people are getting uh, better and better at locking their Facebook accounts down, you know, another thing investigators are, are wanting to look at is their friends list, right? It's a big thing. Like, I want to look at their friends. I want to know kind of their network, who they're, who they're connected to, that kind of thing. Um, and sometimes, you know, you'll have an account that you can look at, you can see the front page, but you can't see the friends list. So one of the easiest tricks that, that investigators can do is they can easily, um, as they're kind of scrolling through the main timeline, they can kind of click the button that shows how many likes they have. And when that little window pops up showing you that, you know, Bill liked this and Jill liked this and Francie liked this, that's actually telling you the friends they have. So it's not as good as having a a solid list in their actual friends page, but looking at the likes and other interactions where people are maybe commenting on posts, those are going to be friends or people that they're connected to on Facebook. So you can actually construct the list uh, doing it that way. It's a bit more manual, but you can definitely do it that way. So you can see, like, I often don't use, like, highly technical tricks to do this work. It is more about what's the simple stuff that works that doesn't force me to rely on a tool or some kind of black magic that I know I can always do. One of the things that no matter what Facebook does for changes, I'm always going to be able to do these things.
1: So, Justin, you mentioned Intel tech, IntelTechniques.com. Um, can, you, yep. can we go back to that and can you talk about that just a little bit and how that works?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, again, it's Michael Basil's uh, website. He's just got a bunch of tools there. So there's a, there's a link, I believe it says tools. And when you click on that link on his page, it will kind of open up a menu. And there's a whole bunch of tools there, uh, Facebook tools, tools for um, checking email accounts, all kinds of stuff. And so in the Facebook section, uh, really, the the nice thing is that you can kind of punch in a username at the very top of the tools page. Um, the username is the part at the end of the Facebook URL. So, for example, if we're going to look at Mark Zuckerberg's account, it's facebook.com slash zuck. So what you can do is you can take that zuck park and plug it into the top of the Facebook tools page, and um, it will tell you their user ID. Um, so Zuck is not a user ID. it's a username. There's a difference. So um, for, for uh, Mark Zuckerberg's account, his username is Zuck, and his user ID is four. Um, I know this just off the top of my head, because um, it's easy to remember. Um, so your, your is user four, ID.:: the,
1: Sorry, is that for the number me? four or for, it's spelled for the number four or four spelled out?
2: It's for the number four. Yeah.
1: Okay. So for example,
2: mine might be, you know, Justin sites might be my username and my profile ID is going to be this huge long number. It's going to be like this massive long, very long ID number. Now the cool thing (laughs) is, is that once the the tool tells you this is the user ID, the user number, you can then copy and paste that into the rest of the fields on the page and it's all self-explanatory. So you take that ID and you can just plug it into the rest of the fields on the page and then start running queries by just clicking literally there's little go button. You just kind of click the go button, and it'll tell you, um, you know, here's all of the the photos that this person was tagged in or the videos that they liked. And then there's also some kind of more advanced searching tools on that page as well.
1: Oh, that's very exciting. Thank you for sharing that. I had no idea. You bet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: okay, so, um, so what about uh, applications like, well, you mentioned Skype already. Uh, what about WhatsApp and, and some of those uh, communication vehicles? Yeah, so I mean, for the most
2: part, from an investigative standpoint, most of those services are tied back to a phone number. A lot of them are. So for an investigator, again, the big thing is, you know, how do I, if I need to communicate with somebody or dig into them, how do I find them on WhatsApp, right? So that's another common question. Like, how do I find them if, if I know they use WhatsApp, Um, How do I see if I can find them, or how do I find them on, for example, on Facebook? Um, So generally speaking, what what I kind of recommend to people is, um, you know, you can use that burner phone, that second phone, like buy an iPhone or an Android phone, something modern. And what you can actually do with a lot of these services when you're doing investigations is if you take your target's name and phone number and you put it into your contact's in your phone. So like your general, you know, your contacts list, your, your uh like on my iPhone I think it's just called contacts. Um so once you put them in there, the cool thing is, is that um when you open up like WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, these applications generally will look in your contacts list and then w- they'll do a search for that person because they assume that if that person's in your contacts list, they must be a friend of yours. So we're going to go search to see if we can find them. On WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever, so we can point them out to you that hey, you can communicate with Jim okay. on WhatsApp. Um, so the right. cool thing is okay. is that you That's can actually I'm, just. add. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry,
1: I've got, to, I've got to interrupt. Uh, our, our 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 executive engineer here just notified me that we're out of time. I'm so sorry. This has been so interesting but <laughs> I the time got away from me. <laughs> but thank you so much, hey, hey, hey. Uh, just. Justin Sykes, um, uh, Hunchley, Uh, go on Hunchley and look him up. You'll find out all kinds of things about him. Tune in again next week so we can declassify more real stories from investigators. It's PIS Declassified with Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.
0: You've been listening to PIS Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler.